of his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Uh, some of you have noticed in your bulletin that we this year are participating in 40 Days for Life. Uh, the aim of that endeavor, and it's a nationwide thing, is to pray against the culture of death in this country, uh, which celebrates abortion as a fundamental right, and which uh, is inching ever closer on euthanasia, uh, putting older people to death uh, for the convenience of their relatives and the convenience of their government. And uh, here in Peoria County, there is an abortion clinic uh, downtown, uh, the Planned Parenthood Clinic. Uh, it is open every Wednesday uh, for the destruction of unborn children. And it is the only day of the week at this point that it is open. Uh, it used to be open seven days a week, and now it's open one day a week. And we believe, yeah, amen, we believe that that is in response to the prayers of God's people, that that place would be shut down. That the butchery of little kids would come to an end, at least in our community. And so I would like to invite those of you who would like to, to join me down there on Friday. Uh, we're not going to protest, we're not going to carry signs, we're not going to yell at anybody. What we're going to do is go down and pray. And we're going to pray uh, beginning at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I'll be there the biggest part of the day, and you're welcome to join me. We're going to pray uh, for the people who uh, are in desperate situations and think that that's the only way out, uh, for the people who are in pain and, uh, and are seeking uh, some kind of answers and can only find them through faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to ask that God would give us opportunities to talk to people, uh, not only about choosing life for their unborn child, but about having life that lasts for eternity uh, through faith in Christ. So if you'd like to join me in that, um, I'd encourage you to join me down there at 8 o'clock. Uh, uh, I believe it's uh, Southwest Adams Street, I think is the name of that road that it's on. And uh, I'll be down there. A bunch of other people will be down there uh, from the community. Uh, and you can join us, and we'll pray. And if you can come for a short time, great. If you can come for a long time, great. Uh, if, you, if you can't make it at all, but you can pray at home, great. Um, because uh, we'd like to see that, that butcher's house shut down. Um, so, in any case, I um, encourage you to join us in that effort. Okay, Over the next 40 days, especially, uh, as we pray to end uh, abortion in our community. So let's pray, and, uh, and then we'll get into Galatians together. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your great blessing. We thank you that Christ himself bore the curse on our behalf, that we would not be accursed before you, that he was put to death, that we would not die, and he was raised to life, that we might have life as well. And Father, we thank you for the tremendous, unimaginable blessing, unexpected blessing of being adopted into your family through faith in Christ. We love you and we pray, Father, that Jesus Christ would be exalted in this place, in this service. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, we are going to be in Galatians today, but let me tell you a story, first of all, from the book of Acts, chapter 16. Uh, when you, in Acts chapter 16, you read how the apostle Paul is traveling with his friend Silas, and they are going around planting churches on uh, Paul's missionary journey there. And uh, as part of that missionary trip, Paul and Silas meet a slave girl. And her owners are uh, making money because this particular slave girl has a demon and it allows her to, uh, to be a fortune teller. And they're making all kinds of money telling people their fortunes through the, action, through the, the mouth of this demon speaking through this little girl. And she follows Paul and Silas around and through the voice of the demon is telling people, these men are telling you how to be saved. And it annoyed Paul because he did not want the testimony of a demon to taint the gospel. And so after a couple of days, Paul finally turns around and tells the demon to be gone. And he departs. And this, the slave girl's owners are angry about this because they see that their, their profit center uh, has been eliminated. And, uh, and so they start a riot on behalf, uh, you know, on their own behalf. Uh, and they get Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into prison. And uh, that night, about midnight, Paul and Silas, I try to imagine, you've been, you've been beaten with sticks. Uh, until you're probably about unconscious. They throw you in prison. They put you in the stocks. And what these guys do is the most amazing thing you've ever heard of people in prison doing after this kind of experience. I committed no crime, not guilty of anything, but nevertheless, I got publicly beaten and humiliated and thrown in prison, put in the stocks. And these guys start singing. They're singing hymns of praise to the living God. And about that time, as they're in the middle of their singing, there's this massive earthquake. And what happens is that all of the chains fall off and all of the doors to the prison open up. And the jailer at that point wakes up. He's been asleep. Because after all, I mean, all the doors are locked. Everybody's in chains in here. Uh, nobody's going anywhere. I'm taking a nap. But he sees, he sees all the doors open, and he assumes all the prisoners have escaped. And he, the penalty in those days, if you were a jailer and let any of your prisoners escape, was that you would be put to death. That the that the punishment that was about to fall on some of these guys would fall on you and you'd be put to death in their place. And so he's about to run himself through with his own sword. When Paul calls out from inside the prison, don't harm yourself, we're all still here. We're all still here, none of us have escaped. We're all still here, just where you left us. And so the jailer calls for lights, brings in torches and lamps, and that he comes in and he falls down before Paul and Silas. And he knows what they're in for. He knows what's happened. He's seen, 
He's heard about the miracle of casting the demon out of this girl. He, he knows there was a riot. He knows these guys were beaten. And then he's heard these guys in response to that singing hymns in prison and then witnessed the earthquake that broke all the prison doors open and all of the locks. And he understands all of a sudden there's something unusual about these men and maybe what the slave girl was saying was true. These men are telling you the way to be saved. So what does he do? He runs in, he drops to his knees and he asks them this penetrating question. He says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved. It's one of the biggest and best questions that a human being can ever ask. And the answer they give is amazingly simple. They say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That is the gospel message in about as few words as possible. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Putting faith in Christ saves sinners. The Philippian jailer did exactly that, and what happened was that he found salvation along with his entire family. And many of us here in this room have done the same. But it's also important to always underline the fact that this is the biblical teaching about salvation because it is so easy to get it complicated and get it wrong the answer is believe in the lord jesus christ lots and lots of people even people within the church have taught that it is believe in jesus christ plus something else it is believe in jesus christ and become a member of this particular church uh, believe in Jesus Christ and get baptized. Believe in Jesus Christ and keep my list of do's and don'ts. Believe in Jesus Christ and stop going to the movies. Uh, believe in Jesus Christ and stop smoking. Believe in Jesus Christ and stop chewing. Uh, believe in Jesus Christ and stop dating girls who do those things. Right? Um, believe in Jesus Christ and some other long list of stuff. Right? But that is not, and some of those things, by the way, might be a good idea, right? You know, if you stop smoking and chewing, you probably live longer, right? And die healthier. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, okay, they might be a good idea, but they are not part of what it means to receive salvation initially, Right? They are not part of what it means to receive salvation initially. And what we need to be able to do is to see and to celebrate the glorious simplicity of salvation by faith alone so that we can rightly worship and praise God and experience the boundless joy of God's love for us in Christ because He did everything necessary for our salvation and he grants it to us on this basis if we will simply believe in jesus christ 
You know, we're in the midst of uh, the month of October. This is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. When uh, Martin Luther, after hundreds of years of attempts to reform the church and to bring about change and to rid the church of corruption and to rid uh, both uh, moral as well as theological, Martin Luther finally... Uh, you know, the way my church history professor put it was this way. He said, for hundreds of years prior to Martin Luther, people said exactly what Martin said, but they were spitting into the wind. And in the year 1517, on October the 31st, the wind changed. And all of a sudden, God brought reformation and a renewal of authentic faith and life into the church. And one of the things that happened was that people rediscovered the biblical gospel. Uh, as, uh, as one pastor said, the Reformation was a time when men discovered in the dusty basement of medieval Christianity giant barrels of 150 proof grace and they went out blind staggering drunk on it. And that is an absolute fact it's a vivid description but it's one that's absolutely true because people all of a sudden realized that being a christian was not a matter of ritual and of formalism and of keeping up with all these things the church told you you had to do to earn your way to heaven it was simple you needed to believe in jesus christ by faith alone by faith alone and are there good works? Yes. But those follow and grow as a result of and are the fruit of a life which you possess right now by faith alone in Christ alone. And they came up with these, these five statements. We looked at the first one last, last week uh, that dealt with the issue of authority, uh, which is that it's not it's not the Bible and the church. It's that the Bible is over the church and tells the church what to believe and what to do. And so we are going to have as our authority the Scripture alone. And they use a Latin phrase for that. Sola Scriptura. The Scriptures alone are our authority. And they inform our faith from first to last. Now, they also, as a, as a follow-up to that, they said in the Gospel... The gospel is salvation by faith alone. Sola fide. Believe in Jesus alone. Sola fide. So I want to underline that for us. If you've got your Bible there, Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 to 14 is what we're going to look at today. Uh, if you look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, Paul begins these verses with a conclusion, which is based on the previous verse. If you look back at verse 6, you'll see that Paul is quoting there Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, the righteousness of God was applied to Abraham's account based on what? Based on his good works? No, he hadn't done any at that point. Based on the fact that he was circumcised? No, he hadn't been circumcised at that point. Based on the fact that he kept the law? No, because the law had not even been given at that point. The law comes about 430 years after Abraham. 
Based on what was, did Abraham receive the righteousness of God? Based on the fact that he did what? Look at the text. He believed God. God gave him promises, and Abraham believed them, and as a result, he was credited with the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God was added to Abraham's account. He was, to use the New Testament term for this, justified. He was declared righteous in the sight of God. Not innocent of sin, although that would be good, but further than that, he was credited as possessing for himself that which belongs to God, his righteousness. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so he says, know then that it is those who are of the faith who are the sons of Abraham. In other words, Who's a, who are the true children of Abraham? One of the questions that Paul was asked all the time as he w- would share the gospel on these missionary journeys that he took was, well, wait a minute. Hang on, Paul. We're Jews. We're the sons of Abraham. Surely God is not going to reject us because we are the sons of Abraham. And Paul's answer was, no, He's not going to reject you if... You have the same faith that Abraham did. But mere uh, genealogical descent from Abraham is not sufficient to gain you salvation. And when he says that, he is echoing what Jesus also said. Remember? Jesus is confronted by some religious leaders in his day, some Jewish men who come to him and they say, we, we don't need to be saved. We have Abraham as our father. Remember what Jesus says? He says, if you have Abraham as your father, you would do what Abraham did. You would believe in me. Abraham was looking forward to the Messiah. And I'm he. And you need to put your trust in me. If you have Abraham as your father, you would worship Jesus. And Paul is making the point that if any of the Old Testament saints were around today, if you're talking Daniel or Elijah or Elisha or Habakkuk or Daniel Daniel or David or Solomon or Noah or whoever you want to name, if they were around today, they would all be Christians. Because all of those people were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, and Jesus is the Messiah who came. He says, It is the children of who is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And he goes on to say that this is not something that he is just making up. Because again, Paul is very concerned that we understand that this is not some innovation he has just developed on his own. He says, verse 8, that the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Right? Now, you might go, well, wait a minute, where's the gospel in that? What what God said to Abraham was this. 
I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to give you a land that will be your own. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. And what he was telling Abraham was this. It is through your line that the Messiah will come. As you read the book of Genesis, what you see is chapter 1, God makes the world. Chapter 2, we get detail on how God created human beings and what assignment he gave them to have and how they were to relate to one another and to his creation. Chapter 3, you get the fall into sin. And in that same chapter, what you have right after they sin, they're confronted by God and God tells them, I am going to send a Messiah, a Savior, through the seed of the woman. And so then chapter 4, you get all of these uh, all this discussion about all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And then chapter 5, you get one of those long begat chapters uh, about who uh, gave birth to so-and-so, who gave birth to so-and-so, and they lived so many years, and then they died and all that, right? And what you're looking for as you're reading Genesis is who is the Messiah going to be? And what nation, as the nations start, are starting to spread out, are, is the Messiah going to come from? And chapter 15, you all of a sudden read God speaking to Abraham and saying, I'm going to make you a nation. And the blessing to the world is going to come through you. He's telling him the Messiah is coming from your family. One of your descendants will be the one who fulfills the promise made to Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And Paul says that, that God in that statement to Abraham is preaching the gospel before the identity of the Messiah is known. Before anybody knows who the Messiah is going to be, we're looking for somebody from Abraham. And, it, and that is what Abraham believed. And that is why God counted his belief as righteousness. Not simply that he believed God's promises, but that he believed this one in specific that the Messiah is coming through me. And guess what? Abraham had a child whose name was Isaac. Uh, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob was the chosen son who, uh, who believed in God, who worshiped God. And then he had 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons was a man named Judah, and he had sons. And one of them was a man named David who became king and he had sons and they were the, the line of kings through the whole history of the nation of Israel and it was through that line that Jesus of Nazareth was born in fulfillment of promises that God had made to Abraham in 2000 B.C. And Abraham believed them 2,000 years before they came to pass. And Paul says it was not just to Abraham that that promise was given. It was to all the nations because it was through Abraham's great descendant that all the nations would get the blessing of salvation. Verse 9, Paul reiterates his conclusion here. He says, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Abraham got great blessings, amen? Founded a nation. The Messiah descends from him. The promises of God are given to him and to his descendants. And he says, you're going to be greatly blessed. And Abraham was greatly blessed. But it says that we who are part of all those nations to whom God's blessing is coming, 
inherit those blessings if we have the same faith as Abraham. You want the blessing God promised Abraham? How do you get it? Very simple. Believe in the Messiah who came from Abraham. You receive it just like Abraham did through faith. Paul is not teaching anything new, in other words. And by the way, neither were the reformers when they went back to this book and to this chapter and said salvation is through faith alone. Salvation is through faith in Jesus alone. And by the way, there is a flip side to this. You don't simply exercise faith in Jesus and then try to add good works like the keeping of the law, for instance, to faith in Jesus. Do you do that? Paul says, he answers that question, verse 10. He says, Look at, he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, uh, I want to see a show of hands. All of you who think that you can keep perfectly in both outward expression and the inward motives of your heart all 613 commands in the law, shoot your hand up. Right? What? No takers on that? Um, here's the reality. You can't keep the law. Amen? Because not only have you got to obey externally, you also have to obey internally. That's part of Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, it's not just those who murder, it's those who hate. It's those who, who tell their, their brother who they should love that he's a moron. Now that might be true, right? But it is not a loving thing to say. It is not kind. It is not gracious. And by the way, if you do that, you deserve to go to hell. That's Jesus' statement. Either keep the law perfectly. Oh, and by the way, from the time you're born. Not like from now on. From the time you're born until the day you die, keep the law perfectly or experience God's curse. Ultimately, God's curse is in hell. Jesus says that, that at the end of all things, that he separates the sheep and the goats, and he says, come and enjoy the blessing to those on his right, and to the goats, he says, depart from me, you who are cursed. If you don't keep the law perfectly, you are under the curse. So it isn't that you can keep the law and add to that uh, faith in Jesus and experience salvation. You can't. Because Jesus plus anything else cancels out Jesus. It is faith in Jesus plus nothing or it's not real faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus plus anything else simply puts you back under the law and if you're back under the law, you're a lawbreaker and you're under the curse and you will be in hell. Cursed is everyone who does not keep the law in every aspect and do it. 
But praise God for what we see in verses 11 to 14. That it is solely and only faith in Jesus that we are saved. Look at this. These verses are amazing. Now it is evident that no one is justified by the law. Is that true? Yes, that's true. If you don't keep the law perfectly from the time you are born until the day you die, then guess what? You are not justified before God. You can't be. You can't be. If you're not perfect, you're not justified. But there is a way out of that. And the way out of that is glorious. It is by faith. And he, here again, Paul is concerned to make sure people understand that he's not teaching them some new thing that he thought up. And so he quotes the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, and he says, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, Christianity is not some new innovative thing that we've invented as a new religion. It is Old Testament faith in the Messiah that the Old Testament predicted, and it is coming to him in the same means that the prophets said you had to come to God. By faith. The righteous will live by faith. And what he means by that is this. If you want to be righteous, there's only one way to get righteousness. And it is not based on your own effort. It is by faith. If you want to get eternal life, you want to live forever and ever in the presence of God, you're going to have to get it one way. And it's not by your own effort. It is by faith. Eternal life and being counted righteous come by faith and faith alone. Now look at verse 12. In contrast to living life by faith, is life under the law. The law says in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, that the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you keep the law perfectly, you get eternal life. But nobody can do that. Which is why faith alone is necessary. If you keep the law, you're in good shape. But if you can't keep it, you're under the curse unless Jesus intervenes. And praise God. That is exactly what happened. Jesus came and He, according to the text here, became accursed for us. We who rebelled against God, who are rightly condemned by the law that says cursed is everyone who does not keep all the things written in the Bible in the book of the law and do them are redeemed by the Son of God. And so that no one could miss the point, God Himself had it caused to be written in the law, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, and then sent His Son to die in precisely that way. In other words, God had a plan before the law was given that the Son was coming and going to be hung on a tree, and yet God said in His law, cursed is by God is everyone who's, written, who's hung on a tree. 
so that when Jesus came hanging on a tree and bleeding out and suffocating on his own blood, everybody would understand this guy is cursed by God. And Paul is telling us why Jesus was cursed by God. He was cursed by God, not for his own sin, but for yours and for mine. He takes the penalty the law demands, death, on himself, not for what he did, but for what we did. He bore God's curse in his death so that we would, be, we would escape from under God's curse and have life instead. That is an amazing thing. That is an absolutely amazing thing that God would do that for His children, those whom He loves. He bore the curse that we deserved, and this is not an accident. Look at verse 14. This is purposeful. So that, in other words, let me give you a reason for this, so that Jesus, look how He's described, the blessing of Abraham. In other words, Abraham got a lot, of, a lot of blessings, but you know what the ultimate one was? The fact that he was the Messiah whom God promised. It was going to be not a blessing, but the blessing to all nations would come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith he dies accursed so that we might live under god's blessing and receive salvation and eternal life in order for the promise to abraham to be fulfilled that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed christ had to die but having died under god's curse for us jesus the blessing of abraham brings us eternal life and the promised holy spirit all through the Old Testament, you get these promises that the Holy Spirit is coming. And the Holy Spirit does, in fact, come at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. But in order to receive Him, you have to do one simple thing. Believe in Jesus Christ plus nothing else. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Now, we've got some new faces here this morning, so I, I just want to be very, very clear. If you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ and you don't know what I am talking about when I say that you will receive eternal life, what I mean is this. The Bible says put your, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who died on the cross in your place for your sins and was raised from the dead to give you new life that you have right now eternal life. That when you die, you do not have to die afraid of what happens after you die. That instead, you will pass immediately into the presence of God. And you will dwell with Him forever and ever and ever. And that He will love you with an everlasting love which never wears out 
never gets consumed, never spoils, never fades away. You will be a child of God for all eternity. That's what eternal life is. Seeing God face to face in His presence forever and ever. And that you get that right now. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, it's the greatest thing in the world to put your trust in Jesus Christ and to know that your sin is forgiven, that when you stand before God, you will stand before Him clothed in the righteousness of His Son. And that none of the things that you have ever done, none of the things you ever will do that are sin and rebellion against God will ever be counted against you on the day of judgment. But you will walk into God's presence and He will say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant, come enjoy your master's happiness. That we die unafraid and instead expectant that we will see our Father face to face. That's eternal life. You know what else we do with a text like this? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you rejoice. You rejoice. And there's a lot we could rejoice about. I want to just point some things out. We need to rejoice and celebrate and never get tired of celebrating the fact that God put His own Son under the law's curse for you and me that we might have blessing and eternal life instead of cursing and death. We need to rejoice that our salvation is not dependent on our good deeds. Amen? That it is not dependent on somehow getting to heaven and hoping that our good stuff outweighs our bad stuff. And that God grades on the curve and that He's going to let me slide in based on my own effort. Because wouldn't it be a bummer to find out that like, if you'd just given ten more dollars to church that you'd be in heaven, but otherwise, sorry? I mean, seriously. Your, your entrance into heaven is not dependent on your good works, but on the good works that Christ has done on your behalf. And we have a lot to rejoice in in that. We need to rejoice in the fact that God has in fact done everything necessary to cancel out your sin and to bring you home into His presence. And there is nothing more that you and I need do but believe in the provision that He has made. We need to rejoice in the fact that when we stand before God one day, we will not be declared innocent of sin, but we will be declared justified in the presence of God. That we will be accounted holy as possessing the righteousness of Jesus, which He in His death has imparted to us and which He has credited to our account. We are going to stand before God as His holy people. We're not going to go through a process of, of, of purgation where we suffer in hell for a while and then we one day get out after we've suffered long enough. That is an anti-biblical doctrine. Jesus suffered every penalty that I deserve for my sin and has declared me righteous in the sight of God. Amen! We rejoice in that. 
that our sins are forgiven, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life for all eternity. And we are not anticipating death with fear, but with great joy, looking forward to the day when we go home. We are going home, brothers and sisters. One day we are going to be with God. We're going to be with one another. I'm going to hug my grandfather's neck. And we're going to spend eternity together. Worshiping Jesus. I'm going to see my grandmother. I'm going to see my great-grandmother who believed in Jesus Christ and died at the age of 93 driving a giant Cadillac. And she's going to tell me about what life was like for her growing up in the 1900s. And I'm going to hear about that and how God was faithful through her whole life. And I'm going to see David and Daniel and Noah and Moses. And we're going to link hands around the throne. Not because we are good people, but because God is a magnificent God who has canceled out all of our sin by faith in the Messiah who was to come, who did come, and who is coming again. We rejoice in this. We rejoice that by faith we have received the Holy Spirit whom God promised in the Old Testament to give to His people and that Jesus established a new covenant and gave, us, gave Him to us. We rejoice that our salvation is by faith alone. And we rest in that. We rejoice in our salvation by faith. Let's pray. Father, we are so in awe that these things are true. There is no better story in all the world than the one that you tell about yourself. Of a God who before the world was made purposed to create for your own glory and to manifest your goodness to creatures whom you made in your image. You made those creatures in your image and they bore your glory and they walked with you in the cool of the day and then rebelled against you and cast your creation into ruin. And yet, in your love for us, Father, you sent the, Mess the Messiah whom you promised to bring redemption to people, to restore the creation back to its original form and even better. And to once again dwell with your people face to face for all eternity that we might give you glory forever and forever. Father, we love you. We love you for the fact that that is a true story. And it is one you are writing in our lives. And that one day it will become visible as we stand before you. Father, we pray that we might rejoice. That we might rejoice now as we will one day rejoice later. Celebrating all that you have done for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.